Chapter 8 What I do not understand is why you must have the other slave, Narcissi whined. To have the woman, of course, is natural, as well as to have quarters of your own. My father has given his permission, but he also said that I and my brothers are to help you, that the secrets of the engine are to be revealed to no one else. Then trot right over to him and get permission for the slave Micah to join me in the work. You can explain that he comes from the same land that I do, and that your secrets are mere children's toys to him. And if Dad wants any other reasons, tell him that I need skilled aid. Someone who knows how to handle tools, and who can be trusted to follow directions exactly as given. You and your brothers have entirely too many ideas of your own about how things should be done, and a tendency to leave details up to the gods, and have a good bash with the hammer if things don't work the way they should." Narcissi retired, seething and mumbling to himself while Jason huddled over the oil stove, planning the next step. It had taken most of the day to lay down logs for rollers and push the sealed engine out into the sandy valley far from the well site. Open space was needed for any experiments where a mistake could release a cloud of war gas. Even Edipon had finally seen the sense of this, though all of his tendencies were to conduct the experiments with great secretiveness behind locked doors. He had granted permission only after skin walls had been erected to form an enclosure that could be guarded. It was only incidental that they acted as a much-appreciated windbreak. After much argument, the dangling chains and shackles had been removed from Jason's arms, and lightweight leg irons substituted. He had to shuffle when he walked, but his arms were completely free, a great improvement over the chains, even though one of the brothers kept watch with a cocked crossbow as long as Jason wasn't fastened down. Now he had to get some tools and some idea of the technical knowledge of these people before he could proceed, which would necessarily entail one more battle over their precious secrets. Come on, he called to his guard. Let's find Edipon and give his ulcers another twinge. After his first enthusiasm, the leader of the Zertanoi was getting very little pleasure out of his new project. You have quarters of your own, he grumbled, and a slave woman to cook for you, and I have just given permission for the other slave to help you. Now, more requests. Do you want to drain all the blood from my body? Let's not dramatize it too much. I simply want some tools to get on with my work, and a peek at your machine shop, or wherever it is you do your mechanical work. I have to have some idea of the way you people solve mechanical problems before I can go to work on that box of tricks out there in the desert. Entrance is forbidden. Regulations are snapping like straws today, so we might as well go on and finish off a few more. Will you lead the way?" The guards were reluctant to open the refinery building gates to Jason, and there was much rattling of keys and worried looks. A brace of elderly Zertanoi stinking of oil fumes emerged from the interior and joined in a shouted argument with Edipon, whose will finally prevailed. Chained again and guarded like a murderer, Jason was begrudgingly led into the dark interior, the contents of which was depressingly anticlimactic. Really from Rubeville, Jason sneered and kicked at the boxful of hand-forged and clumsy tools. The work was of the crudest, the product of a sort of Neolithic machine age. The distilling retort had been laboriously formed from sheet copper and clumsily riveted together. It leaked mightily, as did the soldered seams on the hand-formed pipe. Most of the tools were blacksmith's tongs and hammers for heating and beating out shapes on the anvil. 
The only thing that gladdened Jason's heart were the massive drill press and the lathe that worked off the slave-powered drive belts. In the tool holder of the lathe was clamped a chip of some hard mineral that did a good enough job of cutting the forged iron and low-carbon steel. Even more cheering was the screw-thread advance on the cutting head that was used to produce the massive nuts and bolts that secured the caroy wheels to their shafts. It could have been worse. Jason sorted out the smallest and handiest tools and put them aside for his own use in the morning. The light was almost gone, and there would be no more work this day. They left in armed procession as they came, and a brace of brothers showed him to the kennel-like rooms that was to be his private quarters. The heavy bolt thudded shut in the door behind him, and he winced at the thick fumes of half-burnt kerosene through which the light of the single wick lamp barely penetrated. Ijal crouched over the small oil stove, cooking something in a pottery bowl. She looked up and smiled hesitatingly at Jason, then turned back to the stove. Jason walked over, sniffed, and shuddered. What a feast! Krenoy soup! And I suppose followed by fresh krenoy and krenoy salad. Tomorrow I see about getting a little variety into the diet. Chaaka is great, she whispered without looking up. Chaaka is powerful. Jason is the name. I lost the Chaaka job when they took the uniform away. Jason is powerful to work charms on the Zertanoi and make them do what he will. His slave thanks you. He lifted her chin, and the dumb obedience in her eyes made him wince. Can't we forget about the slavery bit? We are in this thing together, and we'll get out of it together. We will escape. I knew it. You will kill all the Zertanoi and release your slaves and lead us home again where we can march and find Krenoi, far from this terrible place. Some girls are sure easy to please. That is roughly what I had in mind, except when we get out of here we are going in the other direction, as far away from your Krenoi crowd as I can get. Ijal listened attentively, stirring the soup with one hand and scratching inside her leather wrappings with the other. Jason found himself scratching as well, and realized from sore spots on his hide that he had been doing an awful lot of this since he had been dragged out of the ocean of this inhospitable planet. Enough is enough, he exploded, and went over and hammered on the door. This place is a far cry from civilization as I know it, but that is no reason why we can't be as comfortable as possible. Chains and bolts rattled outside the door, and Narcissi pushed his gloom-ridden face in. Why do you cry out? What is wrong? I need some water. Lots of it. But you have water, Narcissi said, puzzled, and pointed to a stone crock in the corner. There is water there enough for days. By your standards, Nars, old boy, not mine. I want at least ten times as much as that, and I want it now. And some soap, if there is such stuff in this barbaric place. There was a good deal of argument involved, but Jason finally got his way with the water by explaining it would be needed for religious rites to make sure that he would not fail in the work tomorrow. It came in a varied collection of containers, along with a shallow bowl full of powerful soft soap. We're in business, he chortled. Take off your clothes. I have a surprise for you. Yes, Jason, Ijal said, smiling happily. You're going to get a bath. Do you know what a bath is? No she said, and shuddered. It sounds evil. Over here and off with the clothes, he ordered, poking at a hole in the floor. This should serve as a drain. At least the water went away when I poured some into it. 
The water was warm from the stove, yet Ijal still crouched against the wall and shuddered when he poured it over her. She screamed when he rubbed the slippery soap into her hair, and he continued with his hand over her mouth so that she wouldn't bring in the guards. He rubbed the soap into his own head, too, and it tingled delightfully as it soaked through to his scalp. Some of it was in his ears muffling them, so the first intonation he had that the door was opened was the sound of Micah's hoarse shout. He was standing in the doorway, finger-pointed and shaking with wrath. Narcissi was standing behind him, peering over his shoulder with fascination at this weird religious rite. "'Degradation!' Micah thundered. "'You force this poor creature to bend to your will, humiliate her, strip her clothes from her, and gaze upon her, though you are not united in lawful wedlock!' He shielded his eyes from sight with a raised arm. "'You are evil, Jason, a demon of evil, and must be brought to justice!' "'Out!' Jason roared and spun Micah about and started him through the door with one of his practiced Chaaka kicks. The only evil here is in your mind, you snooping scut. I'm giving the girl the first scrubbing of her life, and you should be giving me a medal for bringing sanitation to the natives instead of howling like that. He pushed them both out the door and shouted at Narcissi, I want this slave, but not now. Lock him up until morning, then bring him back. He slammed the door and made a mental note to get a hold of a bolt to be placed on this side as well. There were more krenoi for breakfast, but Jason was feeling too good physically to mind. He was scrubbed raw and clean, and the itching was gone even from his sprouting beard. The metal cloth of his pyron coverall had dried almost as soon as it had been washed, so he was wearing clean clothes as well. Ijal was still recovering from the traumatic effects of her bath. But she looked positively attractive, with her skin cleaned and her hair washed and combed a bit. He would have to find some of the local cloth for her, since it would be a shame to ruin the good work by letting her get back into the badly cured skins she was used to wearing. It was with a sensation of positive good feeling that he bellowed for the door to be opened and stamped through the cool morning to his place of labor. Michael was already there, looking scruffy and angry as he rattled his chains. Jason gave him the friendliest of smiles that only rubbed salt into the other's moral wounds. "'Leg irons for him, too,' Jason ordered. "'And do it fast. We have a big job to do today.' He turned back to the sealed engine, rubbing his hands together with anticipation. The concealing hood was made of thin metal that could not hide many secrets. He carefully scratched away some of the paint and discovered a crimped and soldered joint where the sides met, but no other revealing marks. After an hour spent tapping all over with his ear pressed to the metal, he was sure that the hood was just what he had thought it was when he first examined the thing. A double-walled metal container filled with liquid. Puncture it and you were dead. It was there merely to hide the secrets of the engine and served no other function, yet it had to be passed to service the steam engine. Or did it? The construction was roughly cubical, and the hood covered only five sides. What about the sixth? the base. Now you're thinking, Jason. He chortled to himself and knelt down to examine it. A wide flange, apparently of cast iron, projected all around, and it was penetrated by four large bolt holes. The protective casting seemed to be soldered to the base, but there must be stronger, concealed attachments, because it would not move even after he carefully scratched away some of the solder at the base. Therefore, the answer simply had to be on the sixth side. Over here, Micah. 
he called, and the man detached himself reluctantly from the warmth of the stove and shuffled up. Come close and look at this medieval motive power while we talk as if we are discussing business. Are you going to cooperate with me? I do not want to, Jason. I am afraid that you will soil me with your touch as you have others. Well, you're not so clean now. I do not mean physically. Well, I do. You could certainly do with a bath and a deep shampoo. I'm, I'm not worried about the state of your soul. You can battle that out on your own time. But if you work with me, I'll find a way to get us out of this place and to the city that made this engine, because if there is a way off this planet, we'll find it only in the city. I know that. Yet still I hesitate. Small sacrifices now for the greater good later. Isn't the entire purpose of this trip to get me back to justice? You're not going to accomplish that by rotting out the rest of your life as a slave. You are the devil's advocate the way you twist my conscience. Yet what you say is true. I, I will help you here so that we can escape. Fine. Now get to work. Take Narcissi and have him round up at least three good-sized poles, the kind we were chained to in the pumping gang. Bring them back here along with a couple of shovels. Slaves carried the poles only as far as the outside of the skin walls, since Edipon would not admit them inside, and it was up to Jason and Micah to drag them laboriously to the site. The Zertanoi, who never did physical labor, thought it was very funny when Jason suggested that they help. Once in position by the engine, Jason dug channels beneath it and forced the bars under. When this was done, he took turns with Micah in digging out the sand beneath until the engine stood over a pit supported only by the bars. Jason let himself down and examined the bottom of the machine. It was smooth and featureless. Once more he scratched away the paint with careful precision until it was cleared around the edges. Here the solid metal gave way to solder, and he picked at this until he discovered that a piece of sheet metal had been soldered at the edges and fastened to the bedplate. Very tricky, these Opsilonoi. He chortled and attacked the solder with a knife-blade. When one end was loose, he slowly pulled the sheet of metal away, making positive that there was nothing attached to it, nor that it had been booby-trapped in any way. It came off easily enough and clanged down into the pit. The revealed surface was smooth metal, featureless and hard. Enough for one day, Jason said, climbing out of the pit and brushing off his hands. It was almost dark. We've accomplished enough for now, and I want to think a bit before I go ahead. So far, luck has been on our side, but I don't think it should be this easy. I hope you brought your suitcase with you, Micah, because you're moving in with me. Never! A sink of sin! Depravity! Jason looked him coldly in the eye, and with each word he spoke he stabbed him in the chest with his finger to drive the point home. You are moving in with me, because that is essential to our plans. If you stop referring to my moral weaknesses, I'll stop talking about yours. Now come on!" Living with Micah Salmon was trying, but barely possible. He made Iljal and Jason go to the far wall and turn their backs, and promise not to look while he bathed behind a screen of skins. Jason did this, but exacted a small revenge by telling Ijal jokes so that they tittered together and Micah would be sure they were laughing at him. The screen of skins remained after the bath and was reinforced, and Micah retired behind it to sleep. Their food still consisted only of krenoi, and Jason shuddered while he admitted that he was actually growing used to them. 
The following morning, under the frightened gaze of his guards, Jason tackled the underside of the baseplate. He had been thinking about it a good part of the night, and he put his theories to the test at once. By pressing hard on a knife he could make a good groove in the metal. It was not as soft as the solder, but seemed to be some simple alloy containing a good percentage of lead. What could it be concealing? Probing carefully with the point of the knife, he covered the bottom in a regular pattern. The depth of the metal was uniformly deep except in two spots where he found irregularities. They were on the midline of the rectangular base and equidistant from the ends and sides. Picking and scraping, he uncovered two familiar-looking shapes, each as big as his head. Micah, get down in this hole and look at these things. Tell me what you think they are. Micah scratched his head. They're still covered with this metal. I can't be sure. I'm not asking you to be sure of anything. Just tell me what they make you think of. Why, big nuts, of course, threaded on the ends of bolts. But they are so big. They would have to be if they hold the entire metal case on. I think we are getting very close now to the mystery of how to open the engine. And this is the time to be careful. I still can't believe it is as easy as this to crack the secret. I'm going to whittle a wooden template of the nut, then have a wrench made. While I'm gone, you stay down here and pick all the metal off the bolt and out of the screw threads. I can put off doing it while we think this thing through, but sooner or later I'm going to have to take a stab at turning one of those nuts, and I find it very hard to forget about that mustard gas. Making the wrench put a small strain on the local technology, and all of the old men who enjoyed the title of Masters of the Still went into consultation over it. One of them was a fair blacksmith, and after a ritual sacrifice and a round of prayers, he shoved a bar of iron into the charcoal, and Jason pumped the bellows until it glowed white-hot. With much hammering and cursing, it was laboriously formed into a sturdy open-end wrench, with an offset head to get at the countersunk nuts. Jason made sure that the opening was slightly undersized, then took the untempered wrench to the worksite and filed the jaws to an exact fit. After being reheated and quenched in oil, he had the tool that he hoped would do the job. Edipon must have been keeping track of the work progress, because he was waiting near the engine when Jason returned with the completed wrench. I have been under, he announced, and have seen the nuts that the devilish Apsolanoi have concealed with solid metal. Who would have suspected? It still seems to me impossible that one metal could be hidden with another. How could that be done? Easy enough. The base of the assembled engine was put into a form, and the molten covering metal poured into it. It must have a much lower melting point than the steel of the engine, so there would be no damage. They just have a better knowledge of metal technology in the city, and count it on your ignorance. Ignorance? You insult— I, I take it back. I just meant they thought they could get away with the trick, and since they didn't, they are the stupid ones. Does that satisfy you? What do you do next? I take off the nuts, and when I do, there is a good chance that the poison hood will be released and can simply be lifted off. It is too dangerous for you to do. The fiends may still have other traps ready when the nut is turned. I will send a strong slave to turn them while we watch from a distance. His death will not matter. I'm touched by your concern for my health, but as much as I would like to take advantage of the offer, I cannot. I've been over the same ground and reached the reluctant conclusion that this is one job of work that I have to do myself. 
Taking off those nuts looks entirely too easy, and that's what makes me suspicious. I'm going to do it and look out for any more trickery at the same time. And that is something that only I can do. Now I suggest you withdraw with the troops to a safer spot." There was no hesitation about leaving. Footsteps rustled quickly on the sand and Jason was alone. The leather walls flapped slackily in the wind and there was no other sound. Jason spat on his palms, controlled a slight shiver, and slid into the pit. The wrench fitted neatly over the nut. He wrapped both hands around it and, bracing his leg against the pit wall, began to pull. And stopped. Three turns of thread on the bolt projected below the nut, scraped clean of metal by the industrious mica. Something about them looked very wrong, but he didn't know quite what. Mica! he shouted, and had to call loudly two more times before his assistant poked his head tentatively around the screen. Nip over to the petroleum works and get me one of their bolts threaded with a nut, any size, it doesn't matter. Jason warmed his hands by the stove until Micah returned with the oily bolt, then waved him out to rejoin the others. Back in the pit he held it up next to the protruding section of Upsilon bolt and chortled with joy. The threads on the angle bolt were canted at a slightly different angle. Where one ran up, the other ran down. The Upsilon threads had been cut in reverse, with a left-hand thread. Throughout the galaxy there existed as many technical and cultural differences as there were planets. Yet one of the few things they all had in common, inherited from their terrestrial ancestors, was a uniformity of thread. Jason had never thought about it before, but when he mentally ran through his experiences on different planets he realized that they were all the same. Screws went into wood, bolts went into threaded holes, and nuts all went onto bolts when you turned them with a clockwise motion. Counterclockwise removed them. In his hand was the crude Zertano nut and bolt, and when he tried it it moved in the same manner. But the engine bolt did not work that way. It had to be turned clockwise to remove it. Dropping the nut and bolt, he placed the wrench on the massive engine bolt and slowly applied pressure in what felt like the completely wrong direction, as if he were tightening, not loosening. It gave slowly, first a quarter, then a half turn, and bit by bit the projection threads vanished until they were level with the surface of the nut. It turned easily now, and within a minute it fell into the pit. He threw the wrench after it and scrambled out, standing at the edge. He carefully sniffed the air, ready to run at the slightest smell of gas. There was nothing. The second nut came off as easily as the first, and with no ill effects. Jason pushed a sharp chisel between the upper case and the base plate where he had removed the solder, and when he leaned on it the case shifted slightly, held down only by its own weight. From the entrance to the enclosure he shouted to the group huddled in the distance. Come on back. This job is almost finished. They all took turns at sliding into the pit and looking at the projecting bolts and made appreciative sounds when Jason leaned on the chisel and showed how the case was free. There is still the little matter of taking it off, he told them, and I'm sure that grabbing and heaving is the wrong way. That was my first idea, too, but the people who assembled that thing had some bad trouble in store for anyone who tightened those nuts instead of loosening them. Until we find out what that is, we are going to tread very lightly. Do you have any big blocks of ice around here, Edipon? It is winter now, isn't it? Ice? W winter? 
Edipon mumbled, caught off guard by the change of direction, rubbing abstractedly at the reddened tip of his prominent nose. Of course it is winter. Ice. Uh, there must be ice at the higher lakes in the mountain. They are always frozen at this time of year. But what do you want the ice for? You get it, and I'll show you. Have it cut in nice flat blocks that I can stack. I'm not going to lift the hood. I'm going to drop the engine out from underneath it. By the time the slaves had brought the ice down from the distant lakes, Jason had rigged a strong wooden frame flat on the ground around the engine and pushed sharpened metal wedges under the hood, then had secured the wedges to the frame. Now, if the engine was lowered into the pit, the hood would stay above, supported by the wedges. The ice would take care of this. Jason built a foundation of ice under the engine, then slipped out the supporting bars. Now, as the ice slowly melted, the engine would be gently lowered into the pit. The weather remained cold, and the ice refused to melt until Jason had the pit ringed with smoking oil stoves. Water began to run down into the pit, and Micah went to work bailing it out, while the gap between the hood and the base plate widened. The melting continued for the rest of the day, and almost all of the night. Red-eyed and exhausted, Jason and Micah supervised the soggy sinking, and when the Zertanoi returned at dawn, the engine rested safely in a pool of mud on the bottom of the pit. The hood was off. They're tricky devils over there in Uppsala, but Jason Denault wasn't born yesterday, he exulted. Do you see that crock sitting there on top of the engine? He pointed to a sealed container of thick glass the size of a small barrel filled with an oily greenish liquid. It was clamped down tightly with padded supports. That's the booby trap. The nuts I took off were on the threaded ends of two bars that held the hood on, but instead of being fastened directly to the hood, they were connected by a crossbar that rested on top of that jug. If either nut was tightened instead of being loosened, the bar would have bent and broken the glass. I'll give you exactly one guess as to what would have happened then. The poison liquid? None other. And the double-walled hood is filled with it, too. I suggest that as soon as we have dug a deep hole in the desert, the hood and container be buried and forgotten about. I doubt if the engine has many other surprises in store, but I'll be careful as I work on it. You can fix it? You, you know what's wrong with it? Edipon was vibrating with joy. Not yet. I have barely looked at the thing. In fact, one look was enough to convince that the job would be as easy as stealing Krenoi from a blind man. The engine is as inefficient and clumsy in construction as your petroleum still. If you people put one-tenth of the energy into research and improving your product as you do into hiding it from the competition, you would all be flying jets. I forgive your insult because you have done us a service. You will now fix this engine and the other engines. A new day is breaking for us. Right now, it's a new night that is breaking for me, Jason yawned. I have two days' sleep to make up. See if you can talk your sons into wiping the water off that engine before it rusts away. And when I get back, I'll see what I can do about getting it into running condition. End of Part 3 of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison